Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this chance to study your word, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to delve into the truth of Scripture, Lord. I pray you would speak clearly to us. I pray we would understand exactly what you're saying. And I pray we'd have the courage to apply it to our lives for your honor and for your glory. Lord, transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is week 7 in our sermon series that we've entitled Upside Down. We're calling it Upside Down for those of you that may be visiting with us or maybe listening for the first time online. We're calling it Upside Down because we believe that as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Christ calls us to live differently from the rest of the world. In fact, I believe, based on his teachings over the last several weeks and over the many weeks to come, that he calls us really in the phrase we've used to be upside down, to stand out from the crowd, to be different from what the world says we should be. And so we've been challenging you these last several weeks with a couple of things. One is with the family devotion. We have another one this week. I'll, I'll continue to encourage you to take one of those home and spend some time with your children or grandchildren thinking about who Christ is. But one of the other ways that we've challenged you in this sermon series is to be missional. We've used that word on several different occasions. We're going to continue to talk about being missional. And so we're going to give you an opportunity. We've been praying about this and thinking about this as a staff, and we've kind of set aside a time where we're going to do something called the missional life. And so I want you to put on your calendar Sunday, May the 9th at 5 p.m. in the fellowship hall. You say it's a Sunday afternoon, it's difficult. I know it is, but we're far enough out. You can put it on your calendar, you can pray about it, you can think about it. And we're going to spend about an hour that evening talking specifically about what the missional life ought to look like for you. Now, you may remember several weeks ago, at the end of the service, I had you guys that felt like, when I preached this first idea of missional living, those of you that felt like the Lord was speaking to you, I had everybody close their eyes and ask you to raise your hand. You may remember that. About a third of the congregation in each of the services raised their hand. If you raised your hand, I challenged you to be a leader in this missional movement as we go forward. And so I'm talking to you right now specifically. If you feel like the Lord is calling you to live missionally in all things, you need to be part of this meeting because I need to remind you of something. You don't have to get on an airplane and fly across the world to be a missionary. You certainly can, and the Lord calls us to do that, and praise the Lord, a lot of us will be doing that this year. But you can be a missionary tomorrow morning at work with the people that work around you. You can be a missionary in your home with your family. Students, you can be a missionary every single day at school because I promise all of you there are people in our lives that aren't followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're serious about being missional, you need to figure out ways where you can minister And show the love of Christ to those people in an ongoing process. So that night we're going to talk about Mission of Living. We're going to talk specifically about Mission LaGrange and what that's going to look like. So I want you to put that on your calendar. I want you to pray about that. I want you to be here Monday, May the 9th. Sunday, May the 9th at 5 p.m. at the Fellowship Hall. Now, as far as our sermon series goes, the last couple of weeks have kind of been difficult. I kind of warned you. I tried to warn you up front. I tried to prepare you up front. 
But when you begin to talk about lust and murder and adultery and anger of the heart and then last week divorce, we understand that it's a difficult topic. I understand it's been difficult for you. I've had some phone calls. Some have been good, some have been bad. That's okay. I told you from the beginning we're going to teach the truth of the Word of God and we're going to teach it accurately. Now, if we were honest with each other and we were fair in our assessment of our walk with Christ, we all know that Christianity at times can be offensive. We don't like to use that word, do we? It makes us feel uncomfortable. But Christ basically says, this is how you need to live. This is how you need to act. This is how you need to think. And so I'm going to continue to encourage you and challenge you to take the truth of the Word of God and figure out, even as difficult as it might be, how to apply that truth to your life and live upside down. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a breath. These topics today are not going to quite be as difficult as far as society is concerned, but they may be harder for us to do, which I think is very interesting. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to study this week the last three qualifications that the Lord gives us are the last three things he challenges to be in Matthew chapter 5. And so we'll begin in verse 33. Jesus says these words. Again, you have heard that it was said, and remember he set off six different things in the fifth chapter with that phrase. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, and there's always a contrast, right? You've heard it said, but I tell you this. Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. As hard as you may try, regardless of the shampoo that you may try to use, your hair is either black or white, right? Simply... Thank you. A couple of you got that. Simply, or you can't change how much hair you have either. You should have thrown that in for some of us. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, there are three distinct portions of the remaining part of chapter 5. The first one is this. It's the truth we're going to delve into for just a couple of minutes. Honesty must characterize your life. If you are true and serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be honest in all your dealings. And Christ lays it out for us very clearly in this passage of Scripture. He says, you don't really ever need to take an oath. Now we're going to start by playing a little game. I'm going to need you to help me out with it. I'm going to start saying something. I need you to finish it. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a... So you've all taken an oath over the years. I'm ashamed. Wow. See, we've said that as a kid, haven't we, right? And why do we say that as a kid? Hopefully we don't say that phrase anymore as an adult. Possibly you do. But here's why we say that. We say that because we want you to believe that this time, I'm really serious. This time, I'm I'm really being honest with you. I mean, I, I lied last time. I've been dishonest a few times before that, but this time, cross my heart, hope to die, man, stick a needle in my... I'm serious this time, right? It's very interesting because when you begin to think about oaths, 
you understand what Christ is saying to us here and how Christ is leading us and how Christ wants us to understand that if you're honest with people, you don't really need to ever take an oath, do you? If you're truthful in your dealings with the world, there's never really a need for you to take an oath. And so we see the Old Testament that kind of prohibits taking the Lord's name in vain. For example, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19, 12, you shall not swear, there it is, by name, my name falsely and so profane the name of God, I am the Lord. The Lord says, you don't need to take oaths, you don't need to swear, you don't need to take my name in vain. And Matthew, as Christ speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, kind of picks up this idea, he's kind of got this same mindset. And so he says to us, you, you don't need to swear at all. He says, by heaven in verse 34. You don't need to swear by earth or Jerusalem in verse 35. You don't even need to swear by your head in verse 36. Now for us in our world today, it might look something like this. We don't anymore say as an adult, cross my heart, hope that I stick a needle in my eye. But here's what we do say, I swear on my life, this is true. Or maybe we say something even worse, I swear to God I'm telling you the truth, right? I swear to God I'm telling you the truth. But here's what we need to understand. If we were always honest, we don't have to swear an oath to anybody because people can take us at our word. One writer said it like this. The taking of an oath presumes that men frequently lie and will not tell the truth unless they are compelled to do so. It's interesting. Now, if we study through Scripture, we see that this is kind of the case on several different occasions. In fact, James tells us the same thing. James chapter 5 verse 12 says it just as clearly. Above all things, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. I can remember my granddaddy growing up used to tell me stories. And I've heard stories from people in this church about when he was younger. You literally made a deal by shaking somebody's hand. Some of you may remember those days or heard those stories. And I've had people in this church tell me stories about when they were younger, they needed to buy something, and so they went to the bank with their daddy, and they sat down with the president of the bank or the manager of the bank, and over a conversation, they decided how much money they were going to loan. The guy literally brought them out the loan, the money. They never signed anything. They shook hands and agreed to pay it back. That's the way things used to be. Unfortunately, in the world that we live in now, because so many people are dishonest and so many people lie, we've had to make things a little more complicated, right? Now, if you've ever purchased a house, you understand that there's not a simple contract that you sign. I see a lot of you smiling out there. I'll never forget the first time we purchased a house and we had to borrow the money from the bank to purchase the house. And so you go to the bank and we'd never done anything quite like this. So we didn't know what to expect. And you look at the contract for the loan payment, it's about that thick, it's 30 or 40 pages. And I was amazed at the number of times we had to sign our name, and the number of times we had to initial, and all the different forms we had to sign. It seemed like everything they could possibly think of, they added it into the loan. And you say, why do they have to do that? Why do there have to be so many pages? Because there have been people that at some point and some time have tried to cheat somebody else and be dishonest, so they had to add it to the loan, right? Well, this guy tried to do this, and he tried to sneak around and do this. We better add some language in the loan that says he can't do that, right? Or this person tried to sue us and was dishonest, so we better add this into the loan. And we, we, we see 
as we examine society, that honesty is becoming more and more a thing of the past, isn't it? We don't just trust people anymore. We force you to sign papers. We, we force you in some instances to swear because we just don't believe people are telling the truth. Now, some of you may be thinking this. Well, I understand that. I, I don't need to have these egregious lies. I don't need to tell these big lies that are very obvious to everybody. But what, what about the little white lies I tell occasionally, right? Who's keeping score? <laughs> it's not a big deal, right? I'm not saying anything that's really that important. Just a, a little white lie. Well, let, let me just remind you of a couple of truths. Number one, any lie is a lie. I think it's an awfully slippery slope when we begin to compartmentalize our own lies. This one's not that big of a deal. I'm going I'm to tell that one. I won't, I won't tell this one. I'm certainly not going to tell this one. But I'll tell these small lies. But the second thing I think we need to be aware of is that as believers, we are called to live our lives holy as God is holy. That's what the scripture tells us. And if we study and try to understand more about who God is and especially who Christ is, we see that the Lord does not lie. So, for example, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not man that he should lie. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. See, we, we trust the Lord because he is the Lord, right? I mean, could you imagine what Christianity would be like if we just really couldn't trust what Christ told us? you imagine how scary it would be if you gave your life to Christ and lived for his glory and for his honor? And one day you crossed over into eternity and Jesus was standing there and he said, just kidding. <laughs> It's just all, it's a, it's a joke. I made it all up. So we don't, we don't live our lives like that because we trust the Lord, right? We trust that he is who he says he is. We trust Christ and we live our lives based on his teaching. That's how Christ says we need to live. We need to live our lives in honesty. We need to be truthful in all of our activities. We should be trustworthy. We should be a person that other people can count on. That means this. When you say you're going to do something, you ought to just do it, right? When you say you're going to be somewhere, you should just simply be there. When you commit to help somebody, you need to help them. When you tell them that this is truth, it ought to be truth. That ought to be the case at home with your spouse. And that's probably a whole other topic lying to people in our families. We need to be careful there, right? But you ought to be truthful at home. You ought to be truthful at work with your employer or your employees or especially with your customers, right? How easy would it be to increase sales if you weren't honest with your customers, right? We need to be honest at school students, right? How easy, I know this never happened when any of us were in school, but how easy is it for our eyes to wander during that test, right? How easy is it for us to wander when we're doing homework and our friends done it well and we hadn't done it at all? See, if we're not careful, these little areas of life begin to creep in and they become part of who we are and it becomes more difficult for us to seek the Lord. And we, we let a little small white lie become a larger lie and all of a sudden we're not characterized by honesty. And people begin to look at us like they can't trust us. And they don't know if they can believe the things we say. John Stott said it like this. The real implication of the law is that we must keep our promises and be people of our world. I just imagine how different the world would be if everybody were just honest in all things. 
Now, let's continue to move forward. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Matthew 5, 38. You need to be honest. Honesty must characterize your life. Now, I want you to watch something here. This progression is going to get a little more difficult for us. Honesty for most people may be a struggle, but it's probably not a major struggle. But now let's see where he goes next. Let's ratchet it up a little bit. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said. Again, he sets it off with you have heard. This is the fifth of six. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. First truth in this study is we need to be honest in all our dealings. Here's the second truth. We must be willing to give up our rights for the sake of Christ. We ought to be willing to give up our rights for the sake of Christ. Now Jesus here is quoting from the Old Testament as he's done already in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were to read Matthew chapter 5, you could also flip back to Exodus chapter 21, verse 24 and 25, and you would read this. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. I read this, and I I snickered a little bit because it reminded me when I was a kid, right? I mean, somebody hits you, you're hitting them back, right? Somebody steals your truck, you're taking their truck, right? Come on, an eye for an eye kind of idea, right? This is the teaching of the Old Testament, but I want to make sure we understand the culture that Christ is speaking into here. In the first century, and is the case today, as we'll see in just a couple of minutes, people were overreacting, and if somebody took their eye, they wanted to take both eyes. If somebody stole $10, they wanted to steal 20 from the person that stole from them. There was this sense of, if you do this to me, I'm going to retaliate double. Whatever you do to me, it's going to be a lot worse what I do to you. And so what began to happen is people would literally kill each other over, kill each other over the smallest things and would fight over little quarrels. And I started thinking how, how terrible that must have been to live in that kind of society. How difficult that must have been to conduct yourself. And then I kind of started thinking about our society. And I started thinking about how all the little things that happen to us and how if we're not careful, we want to be fighting back against that person. We want to have revenge. We want to respond even in a more inappropriate way than was responded to us. And I started thinking about this idea of road rage. Some of you have heard the phrase before. Let me define road rage for you. Now, I'm I'm getting inside your head. This is personal now, right? Because nobody knows what you say in your own car. So let's just get right on in there and be personal. I'm speaking to myself first, by the way. Road rage is aggressive or angry behavior by a driver of an automobile or other road vehicle. Such behavior might include rude gestures, verbal insults, deliberately driving in an unsafe or threatening manner, or making threats. Road rage can lead to altercations, assaults, and collisions that result in injuries and even death. Now, we all know how frustrating it can be to drive when somebody does something to us that we don't like. They cut us off or they pull out in front of us or they slam on their brakes for no reason. We understand how difficult that can be. But road rage is kind of taking it a step farther. I found this amazing stat as I was doing this research. AAA reported that at least 1,500 people a year are seriously injured or killed in senseless traffic disputes. 
In fact, I read an, an account of a guy in California who this guy cut him off on the freeway. He literally chased the guy down for 15 miles and shot him. Now you think, how ridiculous is that, right? A guy cuts you off in traffic and you become so enraged, you chase him down and kill him. The idea that I'm going to retaliate, I'm going to get revenge, I'm going to do much worse to you than you did to me. That's kind of what this teaching is about in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament recognized and the Pharisees recognized that desire in our hearts. And so this teaching of an eye for an eye was simply to limit your retaliation. In other words, you can only take an eye for an eye, right? You can't go beyond that. You can only take a hand for a hand. You can only take a tooth for a tooth, a bruise for a bruise. Whatever somebody does to you, you can only respond back in kind. But Jesus, as he has done all through the Sermon on the Mount, is going to take it a step farther. You've heard it said that you can only retaliate in kind. But Jesus says, I want you to understand that just because somebody has wronged you doesn't give you the license to wrong them. And that's difficult for us to hear, isn't it? Christ says, just because somebody's done something mean or rude or improper to you doesn't mean you need to respond in kind. And so he gives us this interesting phrase in verse 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, I want to be clear what we're talking about here. I don't, I don't want there to be any kind of confusion as we think through this a little bit, but based on what Christ is going to say here in just a second. We're not talking about somebody that's seeking to beat us or to kill us or to physically injure us in a major way. I think the Bible would teach us we should defend ourselves. But I think the truth that what Christ is getting at here, and it's kind of at the heart of our spirit sometimes in our anger and the way we treat other people, is that we shouldn't retaliate or take revenge on somebody because of our anger. When that guy cuts you off in traffic, you don't have the right biblically to scream back at him insults. You don't have the right to speed up and get in front of him and slam on your brakes, right? You don't have the right to be angry with him. That's just one simple example. But I'm reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 21, where Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We should not retaliate. We should not take revenge. Let me just remind you of our calling. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to take up our cross, to deny ourselves... And to follow Christ. So we're called to give everything to Christ. That includes our rights, our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams. And oftentimes, in the case we're going to look at here in just a second, that also includes our pride. Now look at what Christ says in verse 39. Pull that verse back up if you would please. Verse 39 says this. You've heard it said, eye for an eye tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, here's the command. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That's tough, isn't it? I mean, the very idea of somebody slapping you in the face and you having the mindset of saying to them, well, if you slap this side, why don't you just, why don't you just go ahead and slap this side as well? That's kind of a hard pill for us to swallow, but I want to make sure we're clear here. As we think about what a slap in the face looks like and what a slap in the face does to us, we see as we think about it that a slap in the face isn't really a life-threatening injury, is it? I mean, if you slap me in the face, it would be painful for a few minutes, but it's not going to disfigure my face, it's not going to injure me, it's not going to kill me. And so what we begin to understand as we dissect this and think through this a little bit and understand this is Christ is really talking about our pride here, isn't he? 
See, when somebody slaps you in the face, it's an insult to you. And you get angry about it. And depending on the context in which it happens, it's all about your pride, right? And so to turn the other cheek is this kind of sense of, of a humble response. A gentle person that's not interested in revenge, a person that's non-retaliatory, a person that says, you know, I'm going to love you enough, enough not to respond in kind, not to respond with revenge. I'm going to show you that I'm able and willing to let you hit me again if you want to. You say, I don't know about that. That's real good on paper. That's easy for us to talk about here because nobody's slapping me in the face, right? But if somebody really slaps me in the face, I'm not really sure how I'm going to respond. Is it, is it even possible, you may think, for somebody really to turn the other cheek? Is it truly possible for somebody to respond like this? Well, let me just remind you of the life of Christ. One of those interesting things you'll ever notice about the life of Christ as you study through who, who he was is that he never one time retaliated when somebody did him wrong. Never. You won't find one instance of Christ retaliating or getting revenge when someone wronged him. So when the soldiers arrested him and abused him, he didn't fight back even though he could have. Even though he could have called a legion of angels to defend himself, he didn't do it. When they mocked him and they made fun of him and they spat upon him, he remained silent. He didn't say anything. He didn't fight back. He didn't curse them. He didn't say rude things to them. He willingly allowed them to beat him, to be struck on the face, to make fun of him. And even as he hung on the cross, we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, now he's hanging on the cross, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. One scholar said it like this. Instead of revenge, he hung on the cross in complete humility and suffered injustice, dying for you and for me. See, Jesus demonstrates for us, as difficult as this may be, that we need to be willing to give up our rights, our dignity, our pride, our possessions, as we'll see just a second, for his honor and for his glory. Now let's move on down, verse 40. And he's going to add to this. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. There's this sense here that we ought to be willing to give up for the sake of Christ. Now just a footnote here. Most scholars believe that this is talking about someone who's in real need, not the con artist. We need to be careful. You'd be amazed at the church how many people try to con us out of money. There are people that are pretty good at telling a heart-wrenching story and they know all the right things to say and they want to borrow a little bit of money to pay the house payment or to pay the car payment or to turn the lights back on. And by the way, the, the money that you give goes to do that. We help a lot of people as much as we can. But we have to be awfully careful. Because people will con us and people will trick us. And it's amazing when you begin to ask them some specific questions or you begin to do a little research on who they are, it comes out that their story doesn't quite add up. They're not telling the truth. But I think in this context, Christ is saying to us, if there's somebody that's in real need and needs a shirt, you ought to give them a coat as well. If there's someone that needs you to walk with them for a mile, you ought to walk with them two miles. 
If there's someone who asks you to borrow something, they really need it, you ought to give it to them. You ought to help them. We need to be willing to give up the things that we have, the things that we own, our possessions, our energies, our times, our rights for the sake of Christ. Why? Because when we do that, when we treat a brother or sister that way and we live our life upside down, it displays the love of Christ to them in ways they will never see in the world. You can talk about loving them all you want to, but when you tangibly help them, you demonstrate that love. You can talk about caring for them, but when you walk with them a mile down the road or two miles down the road, or you give them a coat, or you give them a meal, or you help their family out, it's a tangible demonstration of the love of Christ. And I think too many Christians for too long have been willing to speak this idea of helping but have been unwilling to actually help themselves, myself included. That's why we, we love what we're talking about with Mission LaGrange and the opportunity here to, to give back and to help those in need. And you, you continue to pray about this, but I'll, I'll just ask you this question. Does a desire to help other people characterize your life? Are you turning the other cheek when somebody's rude? Are you walking two miles instead of one? Are you giving them a coat instead of just your shirt? Are you letting them borrow things that they really need? Are you living your life for Christ, for his honor, and for his glory? Now we need to finish up Matthew, 25, Matthew 5, <clears throat> verse 43 through 48. Christ says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? That's a very challenging question, by the way. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's the third truth. We must love even those that persecute us. So Christ, it's just very interesting how he kind of steps this up. We need to be honest in our dealings. We need to be willing to give and to help others by giving of our time and our possession and our rights and our pride even. And then he's going to make it even a little more difficult. He's going to call us even kind of to another level here. He's going to say we need to love those people, even those people that persecute us. Now that's a difficult place for us to be in it because we ask ourselves the question, how is it that I can love my enemy? How is it that I can pray for that person that persecutes me? Because as difficult as it might be, we probably all have a person or two or three in our life that is very difficult for us. It could be a family member, it could be a co-worker, it could be a classmate, it could be a teacher. But we all know if we are honest with each other, there is somebody in our hearts and somebody in our lives that's very difficult. And we probably would never use the phrase hate. We'd probably even never use the phrase enemy. But there's somebody out there that kind of grates on us and is difficult for us to deal with. Christ says, that person you need to love. Not only do you need to love that person, but when they persecute you, you need to pray for them. That's tough for us, isn't it? That's hard for us to understand. That's an upside-down kind of idea because that's not what the world says. The world doesn't preach this idea of loving those that hate you. The world doesn't preach this idea of praying for those that persecute you. And I think if we were honest with this and kind of thought through this a little bit, there, there's some truths we see about 
praying for people that persecute us and loving people no matter who they are. And it doesn't matter what stage of life they're in or how they treat you, the way you treat them should always be the same. But I think if we were kind of be honest with ourselves and we wanted to whittle this down to one word and kind of the foundation of what Christ is talking about here, I think he's ultimately talking about the idea of forgiveness. Because you can't love those that hate you unless you've first forgiven them, can you? You can't pray for those that persecute you unless you have first forgiven them. I did some research this week and I was real hesitant to, to use this example, but I'm going to use it because it's so powerful. I'm going to give you very little details because I, I just really don't want to talk about the details. But Gary Ridgway was a serial murderer. He's called the Green River Killer. And through the 80s and 90s, he tormented families, lots of them. 2003, he confessed, and he was sentenced later, a couple years later. And I want to read you a quote from the article I was reading about this man because it's very profound. At Ridgeway's sentencing, the families of the victims had the opportunity to speak out and address Ridgeway directly. And if I told you the details of who this man was, it would sicken you. All that he did and the, 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 the unimaginable pain and hurt that he placed upon so many families... Understandably, many, these are the families that spoke out, were angry and lashed out at Ridgeway for the unimaginable grief he had put them through. As Ridgeway stonely listened to the family members express their grief and anger, and by the way, there's video of this, I watched it. No expression. Kind of the cold-blooded killer look. As he had this stone face, as these family members expressed grief and anger, one person came up and said something unexpected. When the time for Robert Rule, the father of teenage victim Linda Jane Rule, came to speak, Ridgeway finally showed a glimpse of remorse. And by the way, there's a YouTube video, you can watch it, it's amazing. While most had spoken for several minutes, the father of Linda Jane Rule spoke just a few words. And here's his direct quote. Speaking to the man who took the life of his daughter, Mr. Ridgeway, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is what God says to do. And that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. And he sat down. And at that moment, this man who had taken the lives of countless people broke down visibly in tears simply because one man had offered him what probably no one's ever had or ever will, and that is forgiveness. You know, most of us are never going to face, we pray, that extreme of an opportunity to forgive. But how often are we forgiving those people that have wronged us? Do we live by this mindset of forgiveness? Do we forgive the friend that lied to us, the the family member that said something that was hurtful, the the boss that didn't do what he should have done, or the employee who lied to us and didn't do the thing he was... She was supposed to do. See, because as we think through our lives and we we think through how we deal with other people, it's very difficult for us to forgive, right? And it's very hard for us to think about loving the people that have persecuted you. But as you think about this and as you pray through this, I want to remind you of exactly who Christ was. Because as bad as we have been and all the mistakes and the sinfulness in our lives, Christ, because of his love for us, forgave And because he forgave us, we need to forgive others. And when we forgive others, it puts us in a place where we can pray for them, where we can love them, and even though they have wronged us, we can minister to them in the name of Christ. 
You know, we are called to be different. We're called to be honest when the world's not. We're called to give up our rights for the sake of Christ when the world won't. We're called to love those that persecute us and pray for our enemies and forgive people no matter what they've done. And all those things are upside down from what the world says. But you've got a choice. You can either live your life based on the teaching of the world, and I promise you, you can seek after joy and fulfillment and never find it, or you can seek Christ. And you can live your life for Him, and you can bring Him honor and glory, and you will find joy and peace unspeakable. You see, Christ has a plan for our lives. He's got a perfect and holy plan for you. And he desires to use you in incredible ways. We need to seek him and follow him and live upside down for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Again, it's clear and it's challenging. And sometimes it's difficult for us to be honest, Lord. Sometimes it's difficult for us to give up our pride and our possessions. Sometimes it's difficult for us to love those that are our enemies and to pray for those that persecute us, Father. And so we understand we can't do any of this in our own power. But we understand because of who Christ is and because of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, Lord, through you we can do these things. So I pray, Lord, as part of our growth in you, as part of our process of being transformed more into the image of Christ, I pray you'd give us the ability, Lord. I pray right now that that in our hearts, that in our minds, Father, we would think of just one area, just one thing that we need to improve, Father, whether it's forgiveness or whether it's honesty or whether it's giving or whatever it looks like, Father. Remind us of one area that needs to be improved. And then I pray, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we could be transformed in that area. And Lord, I pray that when we do that, you would just bear fruit there. And you would help us to see who you are and exactly what you've called us to be. Lord, you use us, you shape us, and you mold us. Lord, I pray that we would do a mighty work for you, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. I just got this sense, you know, in preaching and and, and just standing here, that there's probably more than one person in this room that's struggling with one of these ideas. Maybe it is forgiveness. Maybe it is honesty. Maybe it is giving to somebody. I don't know what it is. I'm not trying to read your mind. But I just want to encourage you during this time to come and pray at the foot of the cross, at the altar, and give it to Christ. Maybe you don't feel comfortable praying here. Maybe you need to pray where you are. But I just want you to take this time and use it wisely. Kind of make things right. Maybe you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to join the church. This is your time now, though, as you respond and we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.